This is Paul Siegel. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live at 1 p.m. Eastern on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and youtube.com slash wanderingdms slash live. And now, on with the show. Hi everyone, welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan, and on this episode of Wandering DMs, we're going to be talking about roads and highways. What happens when your player characters hit the dusty trail again? Um, <laughs> and it's funny because, so basically this this might be a slightly oddball episode because this comes from me like having an oversight in my game and literally not knowing what to do. So I have a whole litany of complaints and problems and I actually really don't have any advice, so I'm kind of looking for Paul and the live viewers here to give me tips about what to do about this kind of interesting, this interesting oversight. Because I looked through, I actually looked through every single edition of the D and D Core Rules last night, and it has this same oversight in every single edition from zero to first to fifth, from what I mm. can tell. Mm. Interesting. Um, and so maybe I can maybe I can maybe I can give a a, a primer on my problem here uh, before I start before I start asking for tips for to, to solve my game actually. So Paul, if you sh- so obviously we know that you know wilderness travel rules Wait, in D D. Let me let me interrupt yeah. here for a second though. You forgot yeah, to please. mention our sponsor. Oh God, heaven! <laughs> I, I'm so embarrassed. Yes, of course. Uh, uh, so so uh, uh, the, the the show in which I'm getting help today on roads and highways is brought to us with the help of our good friends at Describe.com with a special offer for viewers at the end of the show. But we'll talk about that later. Excellent. Oh my goodness! I'm, I'm so excited, excited about roads and highways. Paul, I forgot about the sponsor. <laughs> Jeez. Um, yeah, I'm excited for this. I'm excited for this one too, honestly, because I, I've run now two long running campaigns that uh, heavily featured roads or travel between major okay. major cities. So uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I got thoughts. I got thoughts. So let's let's go. And I right, and I found the same thing. Right, I found the same thing in my last yeah. original D and D campaign. Is that most of the travel was on the roads, um, mm-hmm. and. There aren't any rules for that in D and D. There aren't any. <clears throat> there aren't any rules for what happens on the roads in yeah. in any edition. It's a total. It's a total blank spot. Um, <laughs> and I was amazed when I realized that uh, that and that I was actually as a result I was not using half of the original D and D travel rules because players were mostly on roads and that isn't in the rules. So I was like, mm-hmm. what the heck? What the heck is that? So let me let me let me give the what is this in an academic article? This is the the uh, the motivation part of the article, I guess. Okay. Right. So we all know that uh, wilderness travel rules in D anD D largely come originally out of uh, the uh, Avalon Hill outdoor survival game that we talk a lot about this show and is required equipment in the original D anD D rulebook. Um, and uh, that was 1972, I think, and it was designed by legendary game designer Jim Dunnigan, who went on to found SBI and design like 200 games or something like that. And so uh, if you pull up the, uh, if you can pull up the outdoor survival map, right? So um, here you are on the middle slice, of the outdoor survival map, and there aren't any roads, right? Um, <laughs> now the whole point of this game is that you're lost in the wilderness. You're lost in the wilderness, like some kind yeah. of either, you know, outback Australia or, 
you know, central Colorado or something like that, or I probably mm. misplaced where the wilderness part of Colorado is. But, um, uh, you know, so the whole point is you are you are lost in the wilderness with with no trails and no roads there. Now, that having been said, obviously, if you look carefully in the mountains, there's a couple mountain trails. Mm-hmm, and if you look mm-hmm. in the woods, there's a couple there's a couple of paths through the woods. But other than that, there's no roads in the central areas. There's no trails connecting the couple of uh, uh, cabins or villages as they're interpreted in D&D in the middle. It just that's not that's not part of the game. Um now, the, those the, now, admittedly, uh, outdoor survival does has the, have this rule that if you're on the mountain trail or the forest trail, uh, you can ignore what I'm going to call the role for being lost. So there's a role for how much control you have over your direction, mm-hmm. which I mm-hmm. think we would recognize as the role to be lost in D&D. And if you're on a mountain trail, you can ignore that. Yeah, um, also, also yeah, point out that, it, that, it, yeah. that it reduces the movement cost, right? That that a trail right. is as easy to move right. across as clear terrain and everything else right. is more expensive. Right, right. But that's it, right? Yep. So it doesn't help you, other than that, it, it doesn't help you avoid encounters. It doesn't help you get food. It doesn't help you get water, which are the important things in outdoor survival. Um, and there aren't, there isn't any network connecting the habitations at all, which makes sense. I mean, the game is about being lost. The game is about being lost in an area that doesn't have any trails and you got to find your way out and you're trying to orient yourself. So that makes sense for outdoor survival, a game about being lost and slowly dying in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you, so, so obviously that's in, you know, Gygax's original D&D, it's required equipment. If you're running a rando wilderness game, you're expected to use that board. Uh, Gary specifically used that as uh, the the wilderness just off the territory from the city of Greyhawk. So I'm told that initially the left-hand side of that board is actually the, where the city of Greyhawk is. Interesting. And his players would adventure you know, further east from there. Um, and then you, you fast forward a little bit, and of course Gary releases his very, very famous World of Greyhawk um, setting and I was so excited when I was a kid and that was released and so maybe Paul if you get a chance you can pull up that map which was you know ideas from Gary Gygax drawn by uh, famous artist Darlene Peckel uh, and many many old schoolers think that this is just a beautiful beautiful map and again I've taken a slice out of the center of it and the city of Greyhawk is kind of in the middle a little bit up and right from the middle of that map there and a bunch of towns, a bunch of cities, a bunch of kingdoms, and no roads and no trails, <laughs> none, none, right? There's this, right, there's this giant kingdom of Furiandi up on the top there, and there's not a single, there's no roads shown on that map anywhere whatsoever. Fascinating. Now, again, if you look, so when, Paul, when we had our season one of the Big Bad uh, last year, of course, one of our favorite teams was the Knights of Ulick. And you can see this. So if, if you didn't know where the states of Ulick are, look on the bottom left of that map there, actually. And you'll see the Duchy of Ulick and the county and the principality, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the the mountain range there that separates those states from the place off to the east, if you look really, really closely, there's a couple dotted mountain trails. Mm-hmm. There was mountains. So the only places that have any kind of trails marked are through the mountains, just like in outdoor survival. Interesting. Other than that, the civilized territories have no roads, no trails. Gary was just fundamentally disinterested in it. Before we before we dig um, deeper into this, yeah. I want to make one other comparison point to another uh, early game that I think was attempting to 
harness uh, the feeling of playing a, a wilderness uh, hex crawl game. But uh, and it's one of my personal favorites, which is Barbarian Prince. Um, oh, yeah. So if we look at the Barbarian Prince map, you'll notice yeah. that there are indeed roads. This is honestly, oh, okay. I've always wanted to like okay. repurpose this map for a D&D campaign because I think it would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. There are certainly roads. They're not all interconnected and spiderweb throughout, right? You do have yeah. to do a little overland travel here and yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe take a, a river route between two cities or whatnot. Yep, yep, yep. Um, I'll also point out that in Barbarian Prince, as you're playing this game and moving about, uh, there are inevitably encounter tables that you're rolling on based on what kind of hex you're in. And roads are definitely special cased. There are specific road encounters, and if you're on a road, so roads okay. will affect your your rate of movement and your and the kinds of encounters you're going to get. So I think okay. I thought that was very interesting that um, that Hendrix here, you know, uh, clearly was aware of the problem and 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 made uh, you know game allowances for it in this game. Uh, I'm trying to remember when Barbarian Prince came out. I think it's a little later, right? It's got to be early 80s, I'm guessing. Yeah, I agree. It was 1980 plus or minus a couple of years. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe someone can tell us that. It's a it is a beautiful map. You know, one of the things that I've learned over time. So there was a there was a there was a time when I was playing Dini, I don't know, in the 90s and there were a couple of articles in Dragon Magazine of like, you know, oh, your fantasy territory is all unrealistic. You should, you know, get an actual map from NORAD or something like that and use that. And what I, what I, having attempted that a while back, it doesn't make for good gaming, right? Normal, mm-hmm. normal maps are too uh, homogeneous and, and kind of uninteresting. Mm-hmm. And what I have learned is looking at Outdoor Survival or Barbarian Prince, there's a lot of uh, variation there. You know, a lot of like little cubby holes where you get caught in by the woods yeah. and mountains or something like that. And that makes for much more interesting gaming. Yep, so I agree. I've certainly... I've certainly surrendered to the unrealistic but really interesting maps like this. All right, so if we go back to what we do have in D&D, I certainly have this bookmarked. Uh, I don't know about you, Dan, but uh, this is one of the yep. most common OD&D pages I use, which is our uh, wilderness um, right. uh, encounter tables. It's based right. on what kind of what kind of wilderness you're in and what, what are you going to roll. This is this is the thing I feel like is most most missing to me. I don't know if this is the problem you're trying to solve, but like apart from just like what does it do to your travel speeds? What I want to know is what happens to you on the road. What kind of encounters exactly. do you have? Yeah. That's my point. Right. Yep. That's that's yep. my pri- that that's what I'm looking for help from today. Because right, so Paul, you're there looking at the original D and D text, yep. and there isn't any special table for roads. No, no there's, there's not. There's clear. Uh, there isn't there isn't any special uh, encounter table for roads whatsoever. And if you go, like I said, that was the thing I was looking for. And so I think some of our viewers are pointing out, depending on edition, right, there might be rules about either movement or how it affects your being lost. The yep. interesting thing, Paul, is in original D&D, it doesn't, the text doesn't even say that roads keep you from being lost. Yeah. Right? That's, that's yeah. an outdoor survival. Technically, it doesn't even say that in original D&D. By the letter of the law, you should still be rolling to see if you get lost. Anyway, clearly Gary was just not interested in roads. <laughs> and so as a result of that, the thing that I was looking for in the first edition DM's guide and second edition and third edition and fourth edition, still today in fifth edition, there's still no encounter table for roads. Hmm. They have, right, first edition had encounter tables for the wilderness and the jungle and the city and the air and underwater and the fairy lands and the Jurassic era and the Pleistocene and the astral plane and the ethereal plane. 
but there weren't any encounter tables for roads or highways. Yep. And and I'm, I'm kind of astounded by that. And as a result, that has been oversight. Every single edition right up until today, fifth edition still doesn't have that, well, which I me, found to be amazing. Let me, let me tell you what I do. But before I get into that, I do want to give you a little context of the kind of game I was running. Um, so, uh, you know, around 2010, I was, I, that's when I started my, my long running BX campaign and I'll just share, I don't think I've ever shared this before, but this is my, uh, wilderness map from that campaign. Oh, oh my goodness. Very detailed. And you'll notice there are that. definitely, there are definitely roads. Yep, yep. Um, and, um, I love the realistic mountains, by the way, I can see well, what you did there. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so one of the things, um, and that's the, basically that that campaign I started with uh, um, L1, and so it was, I had the town of Restonford, and then I just blew it out from there, and I was like, okay, if I zoom out, what's the terrain look like around here? And then I started making stuff up. Um, my whole concept in that game was to be heavily, you know, historical, medieval-influenced on the setting to the point of I had an ancient race that was long gone that was confusing to the locals, which I called the Amorians, which is from Emor, which is just Rome backwards. But, um, so, uh, the Emorian roads still existed, and that was a major concept of my game. So the, the towns that the players were going to were modern towns, but they were built typically on top of the sites of ancient Emorians, uh, towns, and they were connected by ancient Emorian roads, which the people didn't really understand. They were like, we have these lovely roads that we can use and travel around. We okay. don't know how to maintain them. We don't know okay. what, you know, like, we don't know how to build new ones. So <laughs> we're just going to build up our cities and towns along them. So you had really nice roads connecting the towns and cities, but you also had sometimes roads that led off in another direction. And people went, I don't know what's that way. I don't know. We don't go that way. No, <laughs> right? The road's a little overgrown and a little scary and mm, stuff, I guess, is there. Interesting. So I had kind of these two variations of the roads, right? I had the roads that were generally traveled a lot between the major cities. And then I also had these roads that were less used and ill-maintained and were important to the Amorians, but were not used by the current society and so led mm, somewhere, uh, often to interesting Amorian ruins is, is the answer. Right. And and, right. that's, and so a lot of adventure, a lot of adventuring happens of like, well, let's go follow this weird road that we don't know where it goes, but we heard legends of something might exist down this way. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I was reading up on um, medieval travel here last night, uh, a couple books and Wikipedia and stuff like that. And at least the, the, the Wikipedia article is making the claim that by the medieval period, um, no one was building formal roads, and the Roman roads had deteriorated to the point where you kind of couldn't rely on them for yeah. most places. And as a result, uh, you didn't have a connected network. You no longer had an interconnected network that you could guarantee gets you mm. from city A to city yeah. B in Europe. Uh, a lot like the, like the Barbarian Prince map, actually. Yeah, yeah. I right? like you that a lot. You had little disconnected bits yeah. that maybe would permit a wagon or a litter and generally, you couldn't rely on that. And for long distance travel, you had to be on a on a walking horse. Um, I want to. I'm gonna. I'm so jumping around now. I want to read uh, this chunk from this odd. Hold this up. Um, I like that a lot. But I just, so, it, so I'm just gonna trying to toss that in there for context. Um, mostly the fact that what I want is not just roads, but I want varying levels of safety of roads. I Great. want good, well maintained, easy to use roads, and I also want like ill maintained, better than nothing, but. Eh, not right. great roads. 
And I also love the idea, as we saw in the Barbarian Prince map, of like, well, maybe to get from City A to, to City B, you actually have to go to City C and then take the river, right? Like, <laughs> I love that stuff. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I have this random supplement here called Points of Light by Goodman Games. I don't know how I ended up with this. Uh, I was just surprised as I opened it up to discover that it was, I guess, written for 4th edition. Um, presumably D&D. It doesn't say. It just says it was written for the 4th edition. Okay. <laughs> because they, they'd yanked the ability to use that in a third-party product, right? 3rd oh, edition, you was? had a mechanism by which you could market with Dungeons & Dragons. 4th edition, they yanked that capacity. That's funny. I just want to read yeah. you a little chunk from the introduction, which uh, I thought was brilliant. It's it's this is, So this is the, the setting that Goodman Games was working on, and, uh, and it, I found it inspirational for exactly what I want out of my settings, which is this. The vision of points of light is specific. Civilization does not consist of widespread nations and empires, but small city-states or groups of villages that have banded together for mutual support and protection. Between outposts lies only monster-haunted wilderness dotted with the ruins of a once-glorious past and darkened by the ever-present shadow of the unknown. And so that's, that's what I'm looking for from my big wilderness maps, is yeah. little clusters of civilization yeah. that maybe are connected by old roads that, you know, that are really, frankly, it's pretty freaking dangerous to move between. Yeah. Right. Don't. It's very evocative. I mean, I think. Yeah. It, yeah. I think that works good for a campaign. I think that was like a really uh, big uh, note that I think fourth edition D and D in general was trying to deliver. And I think they were. I think even late era three point five, they were they were using that phrase in the, in the core books. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, and it's and and I'm um, and I'm attracted to that. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. I think that does make a lot of sense. And I think the campaign maps that I've been working on lately are kind of in that direction. Frankly. It, it, it vibes also with um, generally the setting of Warhammer Fantasy, uh, which is also very similar and something that I love, as you know, because I run 10 right. Rats. Great. We'll talk about that Great. in a moment, I'm sure. But let's get back to the There's things from 8 to 10 if anybody isn't getting that. So it's, you, should, you should watch more 10 Dead Rats. There is 8 to 10 right before Critical Oral. There you go. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the, the plug. Okay. Um, and okay. i got to point out, John Miller is pointing out, right, the phrase that 4th that Edition had was points of light, right? Mm -hmm. That's which is exactly the name of the right. book. There you go. There you go. Right. Okay. So, um, okay. So here's what I ended up doing. I still use these charts because they're great. Okay. <laughs> and what I would typically do is, if the party was on a road, I would determine either that I generally thought the road was very safe, or maybe a percentage safe. Maybe it's a safe on a four plus on a d six. Okay. Right. So as they're traveling, I hit an encounter. I determine whether or not I want this this encounter to be dangerous or safe, and then I would still roll the encounter as normal, and then I would try to skew it in the direction that I wanted. So, for example, let, and and so what I would do is I would use the charts based on what kind of terrain the road goes through. Okay. So, are you on a road in the mountains? Let's roll in mountains. Are you a road in the woods? Let's roll on woods. Right. And so, uh, just now, I quickly rolled as an example. Uh, on my chart under mountains, and I got animals, and in the subtable and animals, I got uh, weasels. Okay, so giant weasels. And so I might skew that if I felt it was a safe encounter to say, well, it's a, um, what you're actually encountering is a band of monster hunters on the road who have captured a giant weasel in a big cage oh. and oh, are traveling with this giant weasel. Oh, interesting. There's a lot of ways, and, and, and certainly, you know, as you know, on these charts, men feature pretty prominently. There's always an option for men. And so a lot of times I would try to skew the encounter into like, well, what would you actually encounter along a road, right? Oh, I rolled dwarves. Well, there's a group of dwarves traveling along the road. Maybe they're merchants. Maybe they're, 
you know, maybe they are nefarious and and out to get the or swindle the players, or maybe they're not. Maybe they're just generous, nice people, right? Maybe you find a moving army, right? Maybe there's an army on the move from one location to another. So I so I just tried to like use the normal tables, but then tweak it to like what makes sense to exist on a road. Interesting. And it's then sometimes, like if it was a, like if it was just absolute monster, like oh, you're you're encountering uh, trolls. Let's say, I would in that case. I remember one case where I did this. I went, oh, it's trolls. So what I actually did is I, and this is this is a hard tuning, but I said, okay, by the end of the night along the road, you encounter a group of dwarves who have set up camp, and I made a bunch of NPC dwarves, and the players like, blah blah blah, hang out with the the dwarves and make friends, and in the middle of the night, the camp is attacked by a group of trolls. Interesting. From that come down the mountains, attracted by the firelight or whatever, and, and attack the. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. That is, that, that's a, that's an interesting, you know, really flexible, uh, flexible take on it that I, I actually wouldn't have actually thought of. You know, being a, a systems kind of guy as I am, <laughs> um, a, a formal systems guy, um, uh, and of course, uh, um, you know, uh, a while back in the chat there, I saw Stephen say the same idea of, I mean, just use the existing terrain-based encounters for the road. But the thing, and the thing that, that is forcing you, Paul, into being creative with this is the, the, the very original tables only have horrible monsters. Yeah. They don't have any merchants or you know, friendly men or patrols or anything like that. It's, just, it's pretty much just all 100% horrible monsters. It's true. Um, later, it's, they started to work in, right, later editions started to work in things like merchants or pilgrims, but that's yeah. not in those original tables anymore. There's definitely, it's definitely possible, I think, to skew things that are in the original tables into that friendly territory, right? There's There are some number right. of, of entries in there, um, you know, and then and then, you know, maybe I would even... I might even like not roll on the men subtable if I get men, right? Oh, I rolled a okay. an encounter with men. Okay, well I know what the two locations on either end of this road are that they're on. Who would who would be traveling along that road? Right. Right. Um but yeah, and I wanted That's and I wanted that so I wanted some number of like peaceful or friendly encounters that they would happen on the right. road because that certainly happens a lot. And then um the other thing is though that like I wanted some variable of safetyness in there. I wanted like, right. oh, is this road super highly traveled? In which case, like, it's highly unlikely that a monster is actually going to be encountered. Well, let's skew it even harder in the direction of something nice and friendly. Well, there's a question I sometimes yeah. have, actually. Should roads be safer or should they be more risky or should it be in the middle? Because so an argument that I have in my head is, okay, Roads are where people are, and I guess they should be patrolled, and they're important. But on the other hand, then they make really juicy targets. Yep. Yeah. Then they make really they make really juicy targets for your, for your uh, you know, bandits or villains or monsters or carnivores in general. And would that actually wind up attracting more things trying yeah. to attack it? And then maybe those two things balance out, and I'm just rolling a normal encounter die anyway. I'm, um, I I wouldn't I would never skew it to the like a hundred percent chance of friendly nice it, you know, like yeah I think you're yeah. you're right there's gonna be battles on the road and that's interesting that's a fun encounter honestly right of sure. like oh you know trolls came down out right. of the mountains and they you know smelled men traveling on the road so they're here they are to come and eat you yeah right um, yeah. I think that's I think that's super interesting um, absolutely yeah, yeah absolutely I think I think first edition has a rule of like 
if you're in inhabited lands, I think like one in one in four turns into a patrol, hmm. right? Turns into a non-dangerous patrol. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, but that's, again, they tend to have these little throwaway side. In any Gygaxian rules, they tend to be at most a parenthetical note. Yep. But uh, something different happens in inhabited land, something like that. I mean, a fairly easy um, thing to do would be if you wanted to extend that. Like, I'm, I'm pretty lazy here, so I don't want to, yeah. like, write a bunch yeah. of custom content. But it would be easy to write, right. make exactly. your own separate subtable of, like, well, here's some friendly road encounters. Right. Um, but I like taking into the context of where is the road. Right, like, where's is right. the road through? Is it a mountain pass that's that's rarely traveled, or is it like, you know, a major you know trade byway? Right, right. That's that's yep. That's. I mean, again, I think some of our viewers have pointed out like a lot of time that's that's just the di distinction between roads and trails in yep. a lot of later D and D adventures or things like that, um, yep. and that makes a lot of sense. It's funny because I tend to find you know later adventures if they if they provide you a wilderness map right the, the the route of the adventure is always on a trail it's always like start in the city and then you hit this border tower and then you go on the trail through the woods and then you're at the horrible wizard's well, castle it's funny um, you bring that up it's funny you bring that up because uh as you uh, our viewers may know or may not know 10 dead rats uh on thursday nights at 8 p.m is uh is a warhammer uh set game and we are actually using the content from the classic campaign, The Enemy Within, which is a, a series of published material. Um, we're not, I'm not completely beholden to it. The, the, I've been modifying it as we go based on the player activity. So I'm not like, it's not a literal run of it. But they've run through a lot of the content. And the third section is this box set, Death on the Reich, uh, which is just great, fantastic. They, many, many, many claim this is the best, that this is the gem of the series, Death on the Reich. Okay. Okay. Uh, the presumption on Death on the Reich is at the beginning is that the players have a boat. And here's here's the wilderness map you get for Death on the Reich. Um, that's almost a little hard to see, I think. Uh, but you can see there are major riverways, and there are yep. roads as well. Often the roads follow the mm -hmm. rivers, uh, but yep. sometimes like you can see right in the middle there where, where the, the rivers fork, there's a road that, that cuts across yep. through the... Through, through the, the Great Forest there. Through yeah. the Great Forest, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the presumption is the players have a boat and possibly they're going to partake in trade between cities. And so there's rules for that. There's a whole separate, besides like the actual book of the module itself, there's a whole separate thing called river life in the empire. And Great. it's all about traveling the river and the kinds of encounters you might have, extra random encounters you might want to toss at players for traveling up and down the river in their boat. Boy, that really gets my juices running. It is a great, great module. Uh, uh, I uh, couldn't recommend it enough. It's, it's super fun. Super fun. Uh, wow. Now, the, the, the setting of Warhammer is a little slightly different from your classic D&D setting in that it's, I think, I think of it as a little more Renaissance than medieval. Right? We have yep. things like gunpowder, um, and we have uh, coach travel. So that's the other interesting thing, is uh, there are coaching companies that run coaches, and they still have this notion that that you have you know points of light, right? Civilizations that have horrible, you know, dangerous territory between them. But along the roads, inevitably, what you have is this little dotted path of coaching inns, which are like almost like little mini fortresses, right? They're big walled encampments that have a nice a nice tavern and a nice inn and the coach, and they're conveniently placed along the road to be exactly a day's travel apart. 
So you travel down the road and you go to the coaching inn and you stop for the night and you stay at the tavern, uh, stay at the inn there behind the nice safe walls because, oh my God, it's horrible out there. <laughs> and I love that because that's, I mean, what a great encounter that is of, of we are in the coach and we're at this random coaching inn halfway between Altdorf and, and Kemperbad and something horrible comes out in the middle of the night, right? Something tries to get through the walls. That's super fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? Love that. Love that. You know, one thing that this starts to it, it starts to lean on is like the overall construction of your, you know, wilderness campaign. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that um, we kind of have you know, I actually in a lot of a lot of fantasy, I feel literature and games and certainly, you know, Gygax's maps is the the population level is like lunacy low uh, mm -hmm. compared to any kind of real world inhabitations that almost ever existed. And so a while back when I was uh, researching Middle Ages populations levels and stuff like that, um, even at the, the lowest point in the Dark Ages, to my understanding, um, like if you look at a standard, you know, five or six mile hex, like how original D&D was built and a whole mm -hmm. bunch of later stuff, mm -hmm. um, even at the lowest, lowest level pre-Middle Ages, Dark Ages, there should still be like multiple villages per hex on average. There should still be you know, two or three or four or five villages per hex on average. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and obviously we have a tradition coming out of outdoor survival of being able to go days and days and days and days and days and not see any habitation when particularly when, when that's really kind of not really totally the case historically. Um, and particularly if you're following a trail or, or, a, or a road, I would assume, I would assume that if you're really following any kind of trail in the Middle Ages, you're going to wind up running into habitations, kind of like in Death on the Right, mm -hmm. multiple times a day. And so like I, sometimes I wrestle with, is my understanding wrong about that? Hmm. Would there would you would you really be if you're following a trail? Would there ever be any need to really camp out at all, um, or 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 would these villages not? And then I'm like, do villages actually have inns that you can stay at, or is that unrealistic? Or should we have that? Or can you just knock on somebody's door and stay in their barn? Is that how that worked? Um, so yes. sometimes I, I go back and forth myself about how many habitations or how many you know how many sites like that on a standard road should be available so i don't know if any of our viewers have opinions about that but uh do you do you allow people to just like you know drop into a village every time they're on a trail every night or or do you do you hmm. come up with reasons not to do that i've i've certainly never done that i i assume villages okay. exist and they're clustered around okay. the larger cities right and then they kind of okay. like uh, maybe this is a very modern perspective and doesn't actually fit with uh, history, but like I assume, like you've got a big city and then you've got some sprawl of little villages that feed off of it, and then eventually, horrible wilderness. Um, that's always been my assumption. Although I like the idea. Also, when you say village, of course, what enters my mind is is like, do they have an inn? Probably not, right? It's you're talking about like this podunk collection of village always sounds so small in my head, and you're like, oh, it's this you know collection of a dozen houses. And maybe you can bang on someone's door and be like, let me sleep here, please. Uh <laughs> I'll just take a stab yeah, with this. Okay, yeah, so me, yeah. my my reading, particularly like the Geese uh, books, uh, Life in a Medieval Village, Life in a Medieval Castle, stuff like that, makes the point 
that almost everybody lived in a village. So at least in, in actual medieval times, which is totally the opposite from today, at, at, you know, ninety percent of the people all lived in the village. It was it was the primary residence, sure. and on average, you would have hundreds of people. It would be like two, three, four, five hundred people was the average village size. Interesting. Interesting. But surely um, then it must also border on farmland, right? There's got to be a, plenty of farmland for the villagers to go and work. Yeah, yeah. Whenever I look at maps like that, right, they're cl they're usually clustered along a river or road, and then you have these long strips, these yeah. long strips yeah. of farmland sticking out of it. Yeah, and so I think that even then, my understanding was you didn't really literally want to be uh, on a private homestead like some of us here in America have. Um, right. you, you wanted to be clustered fairly near to people where you could walk around. <clears throat> and the overall, you know, the overall feudal situation was that overall cooperation was being run by a right. particular baron or lord. So they, they wanted... I mean they wanted to keep an eye on everybody, among other things. Right. But when you get into that feudal situation, right, again, like now the, the thing that comes to my mind is like, okay, well, what happens when there's a threat, right? Now, I granted there's no like armies of orcs or, or, or groups of trolls roaming around medieval Europe, but, but right. certainly there are invading armies of mm -hmm. other, other cultures, right? And what would happen at that point? I assume the villagers, the villagers would get burned, right? And the villagers would flee to the nearby keep to seek the protection of their feudal lord, I presume. Seems like a good guess, something yeah, like that. Right, right. Yeah. Right. So there's a whole encounter that I didn't even think of that should be on the list of like sacked village. Come yep. across a village yep, and yep, it's yep. been sacked. Yep, yep. Sorry. Wah, wah. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, it's interesting. So so but but anyway, at least at least in um you know classic Gygaxian campaigns, that whole thing is just not basically not an issue. He yeah. he barely, you know, he barely mentions those things. And as someone pointed out, in the uh, the text to the world of Greyhawk, it, the the text does say should it, cities should be connected by roads, mm. but but he didn't show that on the map. <laughs> so so every every DM. So uh, frankly, I marked up right yeah. one of Darlene's beautiful maps, making up my own roads. And years later, I'm like, that wasn't a very good job. I do not like what I did there. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um, uh, so he he has these text points. And it also says there ought to be a bunch of villages, but those aren't shown or really detailed. And so I don't know if this is a phrase that I made up in my head or I saw someone else write this, but I have this phrase in my head, which is the Gygaxian howling wilderness. There's there's almost nobody there and there's no villages and there's no roads. It's just hundreds of miles of open plain yeah. Yeah. <laughs> from what you from what you can tell. And, you know, many of us have still been trying to fill that in to this day. So I have, uh, I want to show one more thing here from my old campaign back in circa 2010. Um, I showed you uh, the, the hex map that I was working off of. So the, the funny thing is when I mentioned no one's seen this, like even my players didn't see this. They didn't get to see it. This Great. was far too detailed for them. What they got was this crappy version of the map. Okay. And, um, and it's representational and the distances aren't perfect. And... Um, and I like that. I like the idea of maps that are imperfect. Uh, but you'll notice uh, you mentioned that, like, you'll notice that there's a road uh, here from the from the um, uh, from Elfenhold that goes out into this here be monsters area, right? So again, the road That's is so the road is from is an ancient Imorian relic. So presumably there used to be civilization that way, but 
current current uh, current civilization really just inhabits this this area here. Uh, this is very difficult for me to do on the. There we go. Right along the along the river around the uh, yeah basically along this river, um, and that this this wide expanse over here. Monsters, who knows what's over there? Terrible things. Um, and generally, I put stuff there like civilizations of, of you know orcs or hobgoblins or whatnot as well right. as just horrible things and ancient Amorian ruins and et cetera, et cetera, all kinds of stuff. So I certainly so had Gygaxian wilderness for sure of unexplored yeah, yeah, yeah. like. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and I see William, you know, Williams saying, and this makes sense. I'm glad that it was so big. <clears throat> so big that it gave us uh, a lot of flexibility to add our own things or add our own yeah, details to yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and I get that as, I mean, I feel like it was, I mean, for me, when I first got it, it was a little bit overwhelming because frankly, I remember making plans. Like I was so excited to get world of Greyhawk when it came out and I was making plans and I actually had like an outside world and I had an area that I was going to fit it into that was, that was 30 miles across. Actually, that was the whole like, I assumed that it was going to fit into this space. And it was like, oh, geez, that's a whole continent. This is not what I expected at all. Um, yeah, and yeah. so it was a little bit overwhelming to get my arms around, actually. Um, and maybe there's, you know, I feel like maybe there would have been an interesting, like, middle ground point of a, a smaller starting wilderness that was more detailed, maybe, mm, to start mm -hmm. us off with, rather than here's a whole world and you go find a corner and then you fill in the interesting adventuring details that you're going to need. Um, um, so you want the wilderness map from L1, it sounds like. <laughs> yes. Actually, I do. Yeah, <laughs> actually, I, yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't. Oh, now I'm annoyed. Yeah. I don't have that on the on the queue here to put up on the on the screen. But that's that's exactly what I love about L1, right? Yeah. Is you have you yeah. have a town for the players to start in. You've got a couple yeah. adventuring locations, and you've got this wilderness map, which is not huge, right? It's not big. It's just a couple miles, I think. Or, yeah. And and uh, but puts puts stuff out and gives you room to add your own stuff, and then also has roads that go off into who knows where. What's yeah. what's to the north? Yeah. Oh no! Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> so uh, I think I think that module is a great kicking off point, and I've kicked off several uh, campaigns with that module, with the idea of like we're going to start here. This is big enough for players to get to like second or third level, even, and then they're going to start asking questions about what's further abroad, and then they're going to have to make that up when that when that happens. Uh, it's 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 a pretty genius work, and it's a lovely map. And of course, it was you know made by Len Lakovka, who was a giant in D and D, and we lost him last year, unfortunately. But that was really a kind of masterstroke. And I wish that you know there had been more, you know, more uh, beginner products pointing us in that direction. I think. Um, you know, one thing, Paul, that you're bringing up by showing that that another thing that I've been wrestling with lately. Uh, you showed us the your 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 real campaign map and the map that you handed your players, and in my last D and D campaign, I did the same thing. Is mm. the players had to do some investigation. They get into the library, they got a map of the region, and I just handed them a map of the region, which was actually more detailed than than yours. And that was kind of inspired by some of our play in the last couple of years of running what I call outdoor spoliation and uh, times when we were in a dungeon and the players got a map, and all of a sudden there was a lot of excitement about being able to strategize um, uh, geographically about where to go next and what direction to take and things like that. And so I, I'd gotten to the point where 
I was convinced that the players having a pretty detailed map with spaces drawn on it mm-hmm. to strategize was a good thing. One thing, so uh, a little while ago, um, YouTuber Lindy Beige, who does a lot of medieval type stuff, I think a couple months back, had a, had a pretty nice video on medieval transport. I think it's like titled Medieval Transport for Beginners, and I would mm-hmm. recommend anybody interested in this stuff watch this. And he made the point that I hadn't heard of before. So him having investigated this stuff and looking at, I think, historical records of monks traveling around Britain, he mm-hmm. made the point that people didn't travel with maps. They traveled with verbal itineraries, a little bit like old triptychs is how I knew them or something like that. So people would have a list of towns they intended to visit. Oh, is his claim. Okay. Right. So a li- so a, a verbal list of towns of go to A, go to B, go to C, and at each point they'd go and they'd just ask, "How do I get now that I'm in C? Which trail do I take for D?" And they'd go yeah. over there. And great, yeah. they follow there to D. So now I'm wondering if, particularly for a larger campaign area, if it might not keep more mystery and also kind of fit the oral tradition of the game and also be a little bit more realistic of give players a list of towns that they need to go from one to the other rather than give them a that's, map. What do you I think, think of that's, that? I think that's great. I think it's brilliant. Um, yeah, I'm reminded of two things right off the cuff. First is just living here in Boston. Uh, you can see remnants of that to this day, that there yeah. are so many roads around here that are named after the town they go towards. So if you are yeah. in Lexington, you can get on Waltham Street and travel down into Waltham. And when you cross the line into Waltham, it becomes Lexington Street. Yeah, literally yeah. changes its name because now right. the because now we know where you are. Where does the road go? <laughs> is the question, right? right? And so I love that concept, and I love the idea of like D and D players arriving in a town and being like, "Oh, we want to get to Restonford. Oh, you just take Restonford Road." <laughs> right, right. And by the time you arrive in Restonford, it's not called that anymore. It's got a different name now. Right. Which right. is hilarious. <laughs> hilarious. Right. Um, I feel like that could work. I mean, I feel like that could work. Partic- and so I feel like um, maybe my next campaign, I think I might do it that way. And, and it kind of gives a little bit more mystery. And the players, you know, will be have an idea of where they're going. But yeah. they still have to kind of fill in their own map geographically about what the issues are. One, one um, of the things, the, the other thing I want to mention is that, like, running in Warhammer, especially using old content like this from the Enemy Within from, from many decades ago, is that, like, a lot of facts are established. There's a lot of canon to Warhammer. Like, we know that these provinces yeah. exist and these towns exist and etc. But the maps have not been consistent. And that's the thing that used to drive me nuts. Okay. Right? Like, where, what yeah. is the distance between these towns? How do I get from town A yeah. to town B? And what other towns am I going to cross through? I'll just show off this this lovely giant poster map that came with one of the Enemy Within campaign books. Uh, here you go. Which is Great. actually pretty similar to the map I was showing before. At yeah. least in the, yeah. in the important parts of I can see Altdorf and I can see uh, Kemperbad and I know that the River Reich runs between them. Are the distances the same? I don't know. This map is actually i guess it does have a scale on it does it work uh, <laughs> um, right how well does that line up with the nice hex map version probably not so great um i now look at that as a benefit honestly i look at that and i go this is amazing i love the idea because cartography is imperfect right so there should be maps that aren't quite 100 percent right and one of the resources i discovered online that i use now in that campaign a lot uh is this which is the travel distances in the empire 
and it's just this giant table of what town are you in? What town do you want to yeah. get to? Yeah. How can you get there? And it gives like it's this many miles via road from Altdorf to Averheim, and it's this many miles from Altdorf to Averheim via river if you want to take this river. And it's just those bare facts, and then you can see it's color coded as well based on the danger level of that travel. Okay. Great. Okay. <laughs> nice. So I can quickly kind of calculate how long is it going to take for me to get from point A to point B, and I don't even have to look at a map. There's right. You're like you could get into that point of like, well, we're in Altdorf. We need to get to Averheim. How do we do it? Well, let's talk to someone, and they'll say, oh, you could take the river, <laughs> but it's dangerous, right, or something. I don't know. Well, you know, in old paper atlases, I mean, we, I mean, I'm, I, I, I feel like on old paper atlases, we still used, we used to have a matrix, right? We used to have yeah. a, like a, like a two by two grid matrix of city A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, E, and then they have mileage distance between them. And then I like looking at this, I can imagine then color coding them for danger level <laughs> on top of that and having a, having a, a grid telling you that information. I love, the, I love the, the danger level. So that's, that's this, this. I can't remember where the heck this thing came from. I'll have to dig up the link. But this thing is one of the things that I keep in my 10 Dead Rats binder at hand whenever we're playing, just in case the players are like, how do I get from blah, blah, blah. The funny thing is, because this this was like, this resource was something that a bunch of fans like compiled, and they, they did it from researching existing published material. Okay. So the distances okay. are all written in ranges, because it's not clear. Yeah. Okay, great. Where it is from from Altdorf to Averheim. It's not actually well, in this in this module. It said it was this far on this map. It looks like it's that far. So I just I just adore that. I adore that. Let me. Okay, now I'm gonna I'm gonna push that a little bit harder, yeah, and this yeah, this, yeah. this might be Dan being a little bit wahoo. So here's a thing that I wished that I could create in a campaign. So you're you're saying it's interesting to have multiple version multiple different maps that are a little bit inconsistent of a campaign area mm -hmm. to give you a little bit of a fog of war you know realism yeah. i get that so the and you know so you know you make a map it's on a piece of paper now it's a now it's an artifact uh a lot of us nowadays use software like hexographer or world builder or whatever it is uh whatever it's called now mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. you know you make it you, you you sit down you make a thing it's a document it's a file now it's an artifact so occasionally, I think about I think about the following fantasy stories by either Lord Dunsany or Lovecraft or somebody like that of one of their flights of fantasy in which they're you know maybe in a dream visiting a particular fantasy city and the concern I guess the concern is once I leave here it's gonna move and I won't be able to find my way back. <laughs> and there's a couple of stories, right? There's a couple of stories by Lovecraft and Dunsany that really hit me, yeah. right, really hit me really solid there about this, frankly, this existential dread. I'm in this place. If I, if I move away, the place might move. The place might be in a different position. And I, and I would love to have that in a campaign. I would love to have a campaign where the territory itself is actually shifting hmm. as you move through it. But I don't know how to support that with any kind of documentation because if I put it on paper, I, what am I going to do? Cut, erase it all the time and rewrite it? Or one uh, thing that and there's that, there's no software. If so, if there was a piece of software that would automatically randomize moving the territory around, uh, 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 right? That, I, I fantasized about that a lot. So if anybody knows about that or can build it, could tell me, please. That <laughs> is fascinating. I, I have something that lightly touches on that, and I'll just show this little campaign map 
so this large forest on the bottom is called Elfenhold, and it's where the elves live. But the elves are semi-nomadic in my campaign. So, like, where okay. Elfenhold is okay. within that forest, okay. where you can go and talk to the Prince of Elves, okay. not clear. You're just going to have to go into the woods and start looking. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so you could so you could maybe get that a little bit with nomadic societies. That's what I'm getting at, <laughs> right? You could get that with, like, you know, a light touch without having to introduce, like, whole weird magical reasoning for why your world is constantly shifting in, in these strange ways. Although you can also get it, right, like, I could push that Elfenhold thing and say, like, they're not nomadic, it's just... Elfland is weird, right? Elves live in a different reality that is somewhat separated from us, and yeah, that's great. also uh, accurate yeah. to um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to the to the inspirational literature. That's great, right? Well, now you're reminding uh, yeah, me it should yeah, be yeah. shifting in four dimensions, right? Should, I want on my territory just shifting like this, plus the time dimension, right? The time should be running in different different yeah. speeds in different locations. I almost forgot that. Yeah. Jeez, yeah, right. Yeah. Now I will say okay, so some of our good friends in the in the in the chat at the moment, so like Ash and and Stephen are suggesting that my, you know my idea of shifting stuff like just not use a map at all. So I will confess I'm a very visual guy, and my you know my my evocative sense really gets hit by seeing you know space laid out geometrically in front of me. So yeah. admittedly, either I have blinders on about running a game like that or i would be uncomfortable with it or i want to see maps i would i would also am i bad guy for that no i because i I think there's there's another another benefit of maps is being able to actually show them to the players right yeah even you know whether you want like a less detailed version of the map or you're just going to give them the whole stinking map because we're playing on the outdoor survival board or whatever i think that's delightful um i love doing stuff like having stuff on the map where um, it might be referenced in the game, and the players then have to pour over the map and find it. Like, oh, I've, right. I know of this ancient. Uh, the legend says that the ancient uh, Imorian um, outpost of Kor Algesh was on the other side of Mount Zerbel. And they're like, look at the map. Can we find Mount Zerbel? Where's that? Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a fun moment. I love that stuff. I love that stuff. So, so I, I would, I like maps in as much as I really want to hand them to players. Okay. Okay. I want to hand them like I've, I've I've done that too before of like locations of like here's a, a map right. a treasure map to uh, to an right. interesting location and it has one point of reference on it that actually the players might have heard of, right? And then they and then they have to go digging through their other maps to find where the hell that is. So I like that. Interesting. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I got some ideas here. Yeah. Yeah, I could see in the not have maps, but I could also like you could maybe do a halfway thing. It depends on I think on how shifting it is. Like in your in your setting here, Dan, do you want like it's just complete chaos? Like everything's moving all the time? I, I there's I think there's a happy medium yeah. of like the players might not realize it for a while, right? Right? right like right. this took four days last time. Why did it take eight days, six days this time? Is that is mm-hmm. that a, is that a mistake? Right? I think we talked about that on a prior show about like you know, uh, 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 stories, uh, sometimes TV shows where they intentionally plant in what appear to be mistakes at some point, but there actually is a reason that explains it behind the, mm. behind mm. the scenes. And so I would love to have one of those, like, I think Dan's made a mistake here a couple yeah. of times and then it, and then it, it finally dawns on them that stuff's actually I, moving around. I think so at you some have point, to... see, something's got to, something's got to yeah. switch sides, right? It's at some point yeah. it has to be like, uh, 
you know, Aliceville was 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 this side of the mountain, and then at some point it's the other side of the mountain or something like that. Yeah, I think I think though you have to approach that stuff with a really light touch because you will just confuse the crap out of the players, right? <laughs> so it's if I feel yes, like this. Thank you this, for the thank you for the vote of confidence, Paul. I, well, I think unfortunately there's there's some there's some content that I've tried to put into games where I think it's super clever yeah. and it won't be a great moment when the players figure this out and they never do because it's just too hard for them to figure out, right? And I worry that yeah. this edges into that territory where they'll just yeah. be like, well, there are no rules, I don't care, don't even bother with it. Just we'll just travel and hope that we end up in the right place. It's a great. It's it, it, that's yeah, that's right. That's happened to me <laughs> many more often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah it's a really it's a really good point yeah I, and you know what i we want you know i want casual players right i'm not gonna i'm not i'm not one of those guys who's gonna lay the whip down like you need to pay more attention to my campaign backstory but i want casual players i want people to be able to drop in yeah. and 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 have a good time without without knowing a 10 years of backstory so i think there's a happier right. medium where you have just some locations that move some areas that are oh, nebulous but okay. it's not all of reality right it's not the whole world is constantly shifting and churning but like oh over here in this particular land you know this this is a floating city and so it moves about the ocean or this is the, the elves live in a different reality and so yeah. you never know when the hell you're going to figure out how to get to their realm right that makes sense <laughs> That I makes like sense. That there was a there was a there was an early uh, Dragon Magazine adventure. I think it won an award in one of the, they used to have uh, design adventure design competitions in early Dragon magazines. It was called the Wandering Trees uh, by a guy named Michael Malone that I actually worked with at one point in a software job accidentally. And <laughs> so it was a, it was a big forest area with a bunch of trails, and you would have to randomly roll which trails currently existed. Nice. You get the different points. You have to roll which trails are currently in existence, um, and uh, and that was that was a that was a neat that was a neat concept. Yeah, yeah. Which is coming to mind now. Before okay, so before I forget this, um, our our friend uh, Stephen here, who uh, reminded us a couple days ago about the rule in uh, Empire of the Petal Throne, right in Tecumel. Mm -hmm. um, so this so obviously this was the 1975 publication. I tried to lay my hand on my paper copy here, and I couldn't find it here today, actually. So, but uh, Stephen reminded us that Empire of the Petal Throne did have specific rules for encounters on roads, and 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 Stephen plays in our friend James Malashevsky's uh, Tecumel campaign, actually. So he's pretty familiar with this, actually. And one of the things I thought was really interesting is Empire of the Petal Throne. I don't know if you can pull up that that file there. Uh, that we have an image for Paul. Oh, oh, sorry. Um, okay. Uh, I thought I was looking for a comment. I thought there was a comment you were going to... Oh, no, no, sorry. Sorry. There's, there's wait, wait. a file there for the number four, right? Four TechML table. It's just text. It's just white text if you're, seeing, it, if you're looking it. at it. Um, so here are the... I can't pronounce anything in TechML. So here are <laughs> the encounters on the Sackby roads. And um, I think same thing, right? Same uh, ancient... Uh, civilization that had fancy roads and some of them fallen in disrepair and some of them are still maintained. Um, and so specifically, if you are uh, adventuring on these highways, you have a special encounter table that you roll on um, uh, just for road encounters. And as you can see here, it involves, could be priests, working of peasants, troop of imperial soldiers, just like you were talking about, Paul. 
And then I think uh, it also says in there that you roll what it is, and then you have to go right back to the reaction table. And mm -hmm. sure enough, you're mm -hmm. going to roll dice to see whether I'm very happy to see you or whether they are hostile and immediately attack you or something like that. So it could go either way. The interesting thing to me is that the system in Empire of the Petal of the Empire of the Petal Throne is almost exactly the same structure as original D&D. So the tables that you were showing us at the start of the show here today, Paul, mm -hmm. they're basically the same structure of those tables. So it's the same columns, and there's a lost column, and an encounter column, and t terrain, and roll for, of course, all the interesting, unique custom monsters in Tecumel. Um, and there's they have the same evasion table, all that kind of stuff, with just one single insertion, one single thing that Barker injected at the start, and that was this. It's this mm -hmm. roads table. And it's actually the very first thing in the wilderness um, rules. It says the very first thing is like, if you're on a road, do this. And then it says, now, if you're not on a road, and then it basically just rolls into the rest of the original D&D stuff. Hmm. And so I feel like it's interesting that Barker saw this almost principal oversight in yeah. you know 1974 when he was writing that and inserted that into Tecumel, and it's still, we still don't have an encounter table like that that's ever got injected into any version of the D&D core rule books. I like, I like this a lot. I would, I would still argue for some variation based on where the road is. Um, I agree. I, and I, so I might even just make yeah. this like, here's the special road subtable, and if the players are on a road, roll a d6 on one through three, use the normal terrain on a four through six, use the road table or something like that. Give yourself a nice sprinkling of these without it just overwhelming the roads. I totally agree. I feel that it's a little bit, the table's a little bit short um, for all the things that could possibly happen in your world. And I, I would do 100% the exact same thing. Though also, I want to call out like troop of soldiers is just my absolute favorite thing to encounter on a road because nothing really causes the players to scratch their heads than like here comes a column of a thousand soldiers marching down the road. Right. Uh, especially, I don't know about you, but in my campaigns, usually there are enough um, uh, different uh, groups possibly struggling over control of the territory or or possibly there are, um, you know, different feudal lords that don't get along super well uh, or whatever, such that not clear if it's going to be a friendly encounter or not, right? Exactly. Not like, exactly. John, oh, it's we're in the Empire and it's Imperial troops and so everything's hunky-dory. Like, mm, where are these troops from? <laughs> well, that's what your Section 1020 uh, reaction rolls are for, Paul. Yeah, there you go. Okay, great, great. That's what... Yeah. 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 Right. Do they like you or do they not like you? I like that a lot. I like that a lot. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. I'm taking out a whole bunch of notes here, actually, as we're <laughs> chatting. So that's when I so, look down and write. That's what's happening. So we're just about out of time here. So I'm curious. Um, I haven't I haven't been watching the chat nearly as 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 well as I had hoped because I was kind of curious if other folks had other ideas of how to deal with road encounters. I mean, we kind of circled back here into like, well, how do you right. deal with road encounters? Which is ultimately what right. this comes to. Um, so if anybody has, I guess, other ideas, I'd love to hear them. Uh, Dan, any 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 final thoughts on on, on road encounters? Well, you know, I didn't say what I actually wound up doing in my in yeah. my OD&D game, actually. And it is for me, it was very simple is and the, and of course, the frustration was when you showed us, Paul, the rule, the original rule in, in OD&D, every day there's two dice rolls. So there's a there's a table there with two dice rolls, one for encounters, mm -hmm. one for being lost. Yep. And of course, the the overall frustration I was finding 
was that since my players were mostly, you know, traveling someplace, and if the campaign has roads, you know, they have a goal, they're not just randomly walking off into the wilderness, yep. like was the game at one point, actually. Um, so they did have some kind of, kind of goal, sometimes in a town. They were trying to take a, a road as, as close to where they were going, certainly. So I found that the vast majority of the time they weren't in the wilderness, they were on a road. Therefore, I was waving the lost die, yep. which is one of the two dice. So fully half of the original D&D wilderness rules, I wasn't, I wasn't actually ever getting to use because the players were on roads. Yep. So my super um, duct tape solution to that was replace the lost die, if you're on a road, replace a lost die with a some kind of civilized encounter die, probably merchants. Mm, Basically, uh -huh. that was it. It's either merchants or patrols. <laughs> and uh, I think as we as we mentioned another week, um, that is happening at the same time as your normal encounter dice. So this would be the times when at least several times I'd have <laughs> monsters and merchants show up at the same time. Yep, that's nice uh, like that. And they have two two groups in conflict, and the players could walk up and and decide whether to just like li leave them to their own devices or get involved on one side or the other if they wanted to. Now our our friend Joshua here. Um, had an idea in our Discord chat that we'll be having. Uh, actually, Paul, you can't make it, but I'll be in the Discord chat after the show last week that I have now uh, officially labeled as exploding encounters in which anytime you roll an encounter, if an encounter shows up, you roll again for an encounter. And if that's positive, you roll again for an encounter. <laughs> and so, and I've, I, I've, suddenly I really like this idea that I'm telling everybody is the exploding encounters idea from Joshua. And so... I think maybe if I run this again, I might just I might just make one die, but have exploding encounters, nice. and see if I can't get two or three or four or five or a battle of seven armies happen all at once. <laughs> that's so amazing. basically, that's what I'm doing now: is I throw yeah. the lost die on a road and I throw yeah. in more encounters. Yeah, simultaneously. I, I, I likewise have gotten rid of the lost. It just doesn't make sense to be lost while on a road. Yeah. But that said, I do try to make sure that there are interesting things that are out in the wilderness where there is no roads so that there is reason for players to go off trail and, and sure. go try to find something. Sure. Sure. <laughs> you know, usually what kind again, of proportion that... for you, Paul, what kind of proportion are our, our characters on a road versus on, on, on trackless wilderness? Whew. Um, I mean, honestly, most of like the interesting locations, the ancient ruins, the, the, the places they want to go that, that are going to have treasure and, and, and monsters and, and stuff that kind of traditional adventure are not on roads. So the roads connect the civilized lands, and so the, uh, typically what happens is, you know, well, we know that this thing is near Bridgefair, so let's travel to Bridgefair, right. and then from there we're going to go to the northwest into the woods and hope we find the thing. So I don't know, I maybe agree. maybe 50-50 at that point, but okay. probably, actually okay. probably even less right. on roads, probably less on roads than 50-50, really? maybe, really? you know, 30-70 okay. of, yeah, because the, the roads, again, generally pretty safe, so just it doesn't take a lot of time to adjudicate that stuff. They wander around the roads. Okay. They meet a friendly encounter. They maybe say, "Hey, what's up?" Or they just say, "Like whatever." We just let them pass. And I go, "Okay, fine. Okay. You let them pass." And then, okay. "Okay, now you're in the town. What's next?" Okay. Now we're going into the woods. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So if you're talking about like percentage of actual play hours, I would say it's more like like twenty seventy or twenty. Yeah, I guess 20, I was more thinking 30, like 70. actual in-game time is what I was thinking. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. That that makes a lot of sense. But I was yeah. actually more thinking like actual in-game time or distance. Mm hmm. 
And which That's, for me, it was like, mo like most of the in-game time and distance was spent on roads. Interesting. And therefore, I need a solution to that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, folks, if you have thoughts on how to uh, adjudicate road encounters, uh, the great missing element uh, from apparently every edition of D&D ever, uh, please uh, leave us some comments below. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, while you're there, check out the description of the video and visit the link to our sponsors, Describe, uh, available at Describe.com slash wandering. That's D-S-C-R-Y-B dot com slash wandering. Dan, what will our viewers find at Describe? Yeah, I'm glad you asked, actually. Uh, so Describe provides professionally written box text. So evocative, short, really interesting descriptions for new monsters or places or things that they met on the road or new spells um, that uh, show up in your game. So if you are a, a role-playing game master, uh, Describe can save you quite a bit of time uh, coming up with uh, descriptions that, uh, or jogging your imagination with things you wouldn't have thought of before. And of course, they also have a quick search facility. So if your players literally go off the trail, <laughs> which you're telling me is most of the time, Paul, yeah, um, yeah. you can quickly look up on Describe.com for a quick evocative description of what they find there. Awesome. And don't forget to use the uh, special discount code WANDERING uh, if you do make any purchases over there at Describe.com for 10% off of any purchase. That's correct. And of course, remember if you're new to the show that you can like, follow, and subscribe to us, The Wandering Dams, on uh, various social media sites such as YouTube and Twitch. And we're on Twitter and we're on Facebook and we're on GitHub. Um, and we do have the title Wandering Dams on all of those sites. So please look for us there and, uh, and follow us for future stuff that's happening. You can also listen to our show in audio-only podcast format if you prefer. That's available at our website at wanderingdms.com. A uh, little trailing a little bit behind the uh, live shows, but uh, being updated regularly. Um, you can also find them on various podcast carriers such as uh, Google Podcasts and iTunes and Spotify. If you are listening to us on one of those carriers, please take a moment to rate and review us there. That helps other users of that carrier find us and uh, helps us out a lot. It really does. Uh, look for upcoming stuff on Wandering Dams channel here on YouTube and uh, Twitch. Um, Paul will have uh, 10 Dead Rats on Thursday from 8 to 10 p.m. as we pointed out. And more crazy D&D &D Warhammer mashups in the Warhammer world um, that we're excited about seeing. Uh, Isabel and I have planned a Book of War War Game session for Saturday night at 8 p.m., so look for that. Now, next week, we're very excited because we're going to have very special guest Janelle Jaquaze on next week, um, who is one of the legendary uh, game adventure designers for D&D &D of all time, and I have loved her material for, for years since I discovered it. And, of course, she wrote uh, Dark Tower, and she wrote Caverns of Thracia, which is one of uh, our favorite uh, adventures. Um, last year worked on a supplement for a retrospective of all the Judges Guild products that uh, published most of her materials, and is also working on a bunch of new 5th edition products right at the moment. So uh, please tune in next week for um, uh, Janelle Jaquaze and get some questions into her hopefully from the live chat and what she's up to at the moment. Uh, of course, uh, I'm not going to forget to thank all of our uh, very generous patrons uh, who support the Wandering DMs here. And we can get us, uh, allow us to get wonderful guests like Janelle next week. Um, if you're in a position where you could uh, uh, join our patrons in supporting the Wandering DMs, please do go to patreon.com slash wandering DMs and you'll see our different tier levels. 
in which you will get access to our private Discord server where we do continue the chat uh, every week after, like after this show in a couple minutes and discounts on merch codes and uh, availability for uh, private vid backstage videos that we do each month and polls and surveys on what you wanna see on our blogs and future shows and a whole bunch of stuff like that. I think I got it, right? So please, so please join us on patreon.com and uh, you get to see our backstage stuff that uh, we, we're we a little bit embarrassed about, but we'll let you in on it if you do that. <laughs> Anything else coming up this week that Excellent. I should uh, tell people about? Paul? No, no I, think, I think you've got everything. Okay, awesome. So, of course, we are live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time, so we hope that you'll tune in next week for the Janelle Jaquaze interview that we're so excited about and another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then.